servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God and the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the day, on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life, of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, those these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on cel- celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke, rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the th- very things they do not understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, they have been taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves, they are, they are clouds without rain, blown along the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. That's our reading thus far. Thanks, Roscoe. Well, it's a common theme in uh, many action movies that one of the main good guys actually turns out to be a bad guy. 
the double agent who quietly slips in undetected and then starts to push their own agenda, or the seeming chosen one who demonstrates such potential and skill but becomes influenced and goes down the wrong path. Straight away I think of Star Wars and little Anakin Skywalker, the one who demonstrated such gifts and strength and leadership but whose motivations became twisted and he led so many astray as Darth Vader. Hopefully it's been around long enough that I didn't spoil that for you. <laughs> now imagine this happening in our churches. Imagine there are individuals who have slipped in and are trying to influence believers in a way which perverts God's grace. Well, this is what we're looking at this morning, not because the elders believe that this is happening here right now in this church, but because this is what the passage before us tells us is happening and has happened. It has happened in the past and it will happen in the future, so don't be surprised, be ready. Some here this morning might say, oh, yeah, this happens elsewhere. Oh, and it's terrible. I've read about this happening in this church or in that church. Oh, but not here. No, 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 not, not in our church. Others may reflect on situations that they've personally experienced and think of individuals that they know who have done this or been false teachers. In the 70-year history of this church, of any church, this has and does happen. Don't be surprised. This might be something that's a little bit uncomfortable for us to think about. Jude's letter warns us that we shouldn't be surprised when this happens in our churches. In fact, we should expect it. We should be able to recognise it, resist it and be ready to respond. Now, the book of Jude has a relatively simple structure as a book. However, it does hold some pretty tricky and complex examples many of which we will endeavour to unpack today and in a couple of weeks' time when we conclude this basic two-sermon series on Jude. The structure of Jude is in three parts. There's an opening from the writer uh, to the recipients of the letter explaining his purpose, a larger section which is actually broken into three smaller parts which draws on multiple examples from throughout Jewish history and of how God has dealt with rebellious and false teachers from within, throughout history. This section will also help us in recognising false teachers. And the third section is some advice on what the church should do about this. This will help with the resisting and the responding. Today we're going to unpack the first 16 verses which looks at the first two sections as I've just outlined. In two weeks' time we'll recap that and look at the concluding section of the text. Now, if you find something we worked through this morning interesting or challenging or confusing, be encouraged, because it means that you're engaging in thinking through the word. Please come and talk to me or seek out some more information. If there are still unanswered questions, that's okay. Now, I've enjoyed wrestling with this passage, and I hope that you also enjoy as we wrestle with it together. As always, it's good practice and important for us to think about what type of text we're looking at. As I said already, it's a letter. The book opens with a three-part greeting. The author introduces himself, introduces the recipients, and gives a prayer. Starting at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. 
The recipients of this letter are actually not identified as a ge by a geographical location, as we see in many other letters find in the Bible. For example, to the church at Corinth. They are simply identified as those who have been called, who have been loved, and who have been kept for Jesus. Called here is referring to them being chosen, or being elected to, follow, to be followers of Jesus. They are also reminded that they are loved by God the Father and that they are kept for. Now, kept for here is more accurately translated as kept by Jesus Christ. The keeping here refers to the preservation, to the guarding and the protection of the faith of the readers. Preservation and keeping is a strong theme of this letter from Jude. When this letter was written is post-Jesus' ascension, so we know that we are in the last days. We are in what is known as the age of the church. But who is this Jude guy? Well, he introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. The James he's referring to here is James, the brother of Jesus. In Matthew 13 and Mark 6, we read of James and of his brothers. Uh, there we see Jesus is returning to his hometown and he's teaching the local people. And the local people there say, hey, isn't that the carpenter's son? His mum's Mary and his brothers are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Jude is actually the Greek version of the name Judas. Sometimes it's also translated as Judah. It's the same bloke. This letter is written by Jesus' earthly brother, Judas. Now, to avoid confusion, I will continue to use the Greek version of the name Jude throughout the rest of the sermon. So Jude is our author. After the resurrection of Jesus, all of Jesus' earthly brothers became leaders in the early church in varying ways and to various degrees. Jude was actually known as a travelling teacher, as a missionary, if you like. It's interesting that he identifies himself here firstly as a servant to Jesus and as a brother to James. This demonstrates that clear connection to Jesus, but doing so very humbly. Now Jude wrote this letter, who's he writing it to? The called, loved and kept. A group of believers are receiving this letter. Now they would have mainly been Jewish Christians, or a mix of Jewish and Gentile believers. And we can be confident of this because of the content of the letter, with many Jewish traditions and Hebrew scriptures and other writings being referred to. Now, whenever someone writes a letter, it's got a purpose. It might be to share some good news or to encourage someone to get an important or specific point across, or maybe just to let someone know that you're thinking about them. Jude is really clear in his purpose, but it's also clear that he actually changed his purpose before he even put pen to paper. Look with me at verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. Jude had been planning a much larger work of theology, the theology of salvation, but he knew that he couldn't do this because there was something that was far more important that needed to be written. The language Jude uses here shows that sense of urgency. I'm compelled, I'm urged. Something was far more important in Jude's mind in this moment and needed to be said. Now this tells us that what comes next is important and we shouldn't be ignoring it. 
Jude is urging the readers to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. Now, the word faith can be used in different ways. Sometimes the word faith refers to be putting your trust in something. Like I can put my trust in a chair to take my weight when I sit down on it. I I trust it. I, I put faith in it. Faith here in this context is, however, being used in a slightly different way. It's being used in relation to the doctrine or the teachings, the gospel confessions which were embraced by believers, the faith. This meaning is made clear through the purpose of the letter and through the content of this letter. Jude wants his readers, and by extension us, to understand that we need to contend to, to hold to, to protect, if you will, the faith, the teachings that they have been taught, that we've been taught, because that there are those that will try to add to, to change or to twist what has been taught. Now the phrase here, once and for all, is also important. It's another way of Jude emphasising that the faith, these teachings, have been given and they are complete. They don't need further additions or changes. They don't need to be passed on in a way that is changed. They need to be passed on in a way that is protected. This is the role of the church in the age of the church, the last days. To know and proclaim the true teachings of God. Jude is clearly outlining this to the reader, that they've been given a set of teachings and they need to now make sure that they protect them from those who try to change, to add to or twist. Now this warning is as true for us today as it was for the original audience. There's no shortage of Christian material out there, just at our fingertips. I'm not sure about this or that, I'll just Google it and see what comes up. Now, while this is a great resource for us to have access to so much information, it's also a phenomenal trap. The warnings from Jude is also for us today. Verse 4 shows us that this pattern is here. Ungodly people pervert the grace of God. We must filter all we see and read through the lens of the faith through the teachings of the Word. Don't fall into the trap of Googling, reading and accepting. The missing step, filtering, is so important. Filter through the Word of God. Filter through godly counsel. It's so important. There are many out there who are trying to pervert the grace of God, who deny Jesus by adding something else to the Gospel. Their motivation may be obvious, but it may also be quite subtle. You see, half-truth is often more dangerous than obvious falsehood. At the core of, of all of this is rebellion against God. You see, this often occurs in relation to power, money or sex. We need to remember to filter and test everything. Everything, including what you hear from the pulpit. Above all, pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance and help in doing this. Now, there are many passages in the Bible which address false teachers. It's a theme that's found throughout the New Testament writings, but it was also a reality in the Old Testament. Jude makes it clear that false teachers are still a reality for us today. An example of this can also be seen in 2 Peter 2. 
This has often been referred to as a parallel to our passage here in Jude, where very common themes are seen in both passages and even the pattern of how the passage is unpacked. 2 Peter 2, verse 2. But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereignty of the Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In these and many other examples, we see that false teachers slip into the church. These false teachers teach doctrine and foster rebellion. They stir up trouble and discord amongst believers. They divide. Their attitude is one of pride and their motive is of profit. They promote immorality, particularly in relation to sex and money. Looking at their character and their life is often a good measure of what their motivation is to assist us in recognising them. I've also learnt over time that a good question to ask is where is the glory going? A really simple little measure. Is it going to God or is it going to them? Now while Jude is referring to specific individuals within the believers he's writing to here, he is pointing out a pattern that we can understand and adapt today. One which is not not new and one which we see as he unpacks some examples has been throughout history. He's transitioning now to remind the readers that God's judgment will come on those who rebel. He uses three examples from history as warnings. Now, Jude is a really clever writer. He uses the rule of three extensively. His intro was in three parts. Over all structures of his letter, it is in three parts. He uses three historical examples and then three characters. The rule of three is a writing principle based on the idea that humans process information through pattern recognition. And three is the smallest number that allows us to recognise a pattern in a set. Three can help us um, as as a tool for memorable phrases or examples. God created the rule of three. God even lives out the rule of three in the Trinity. In this triad of historical examples Jude unpacks for us, from verse 5 to 9, we're focusing here on rebellion and divine justice. We see Exodus from Egypt, we see angels who do not keep the authority, and we see Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, two of these examples would be ones that we're fairly familiar with, most of us anyway. Uh, Unpacking, we could uh, explain it to somebody else. The Exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land and Sodom and Gomorrah the twin sinful cities, if you will. But what's the deal with the angels here? So we're going to dig a little deeper. We dig a little deeper into 2 Peter. It also takes us to Genesis 6. And we see that Jude is actually speaking here of angels who had sinned in sex with humans. Now this leaves us with more questions than it does give us answers. So we keep on digging remembering that this is included as an example to actually connect to rebellion and justice and false teachers. Let's not get distracted. Let's remember the purpose of the passage. Now, we're going to have a few detours this morning because we come across some tricky things, we need to address them. But a detour, a good detour, helps us navigate through or around something challenging but quickly returns us back to the main road. 
So we need to remember that we have to come back to the purpose. Now, we know that the original audience was a group of believers who had a broad understanding of Jewish writings and were able to connect Jude's reference here in verse 6 to Genesis 6, verse 1 to 4. When a man began to multiply in the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, this is from Genesis, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, the interpretation most favoured in ancient Judaism and also in the early church was that the sons of God are fallen angels, demons. This is also seen in 1 Peter 3 and in 2 Peter 2 and in our passage here this morning, Jude. Verse 6. Now, Peter, like Jude, provides Old Testament examples of God's judgment and links this to false teachers. Peter, however, includes the flood and places his examples in chronological order, a slight difference to what Jude is doing. But the point that they are both trying to make is exactly the same. They're trying to make the point that these angels demonstrated sinful pride by abandoning their position of authority and leaving their proper dwelling. They abused their position for their own gain, just as false teachers do. And for that rebellion, divine justice was given to them. They're now being, as we read, kept in eternal chains until the day of judgment. Furthermore, we see a connection and a comparison with the men in Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. This brings to bear the point of sexual immorality and the pursuit of unnatural desires from both examples of the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. Friends, remember that Jude is writing to warn believers to contend or to protect the faith from these people who slip in. These three examples, Exodus, the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah, show that they are people from within. In the desert, the grumblers from within God's chosen people who didn't enter the promised land had that as divine justice. The celestial insiders, the fallen angels who went outside God's commands in relation to their interactions with humans, they are now bound in everlasting chains awaiting judgment. And Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham was pleading with God for his nephew Lot and the family who were within the city, and the city was destroyed. Jude is making these Jewish historical connections to reinforce his point that rebellion leads to divine justice. Verse 8. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. And down to verse 16. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others to their own advantage. The false teachers can be identified by their actions. Grumblers, reject authority, and follow their own evil desires. Jude wraps up this section with a bit of a bonus example in verse 9. Michael the archangel did not dare to reprove the devil when arguing about the body of Moses. Instead, he left a final judgment to the Lord, calling upon the Lord to rebuke the devil. Now, friends, this brings us to our second detour this morning. As some of you may have picked up, this is not an account which is actually recorded anywhere else in the Bible. This interaction between the angel Michael and the devil over Moses' body is an example of two in Jude, where Jude is quoting from writings which are not from within the Bible. They're not scripture. 
Here with Moses, from he's quoting from the book, The Assumption of Moses, and in verse 14 and 16, when speaking of Enoch, quoting from the book of Enoch. Now, a quick check of your Bible's contents page will see that there's no book of Moses or book of Enoch. This short detour, once again, is here to help us not to get distracted or to crash out on some of the hazards before us, but to seek some answers and to build our understanding. We need to remember that the people who are reading this letter for the first time didn't have the Bible as we know it today. The history of how the collection of the writings of the Bible we have is one that's really worth looking into, but it's not for us to cover here this morning. This is going to be a short detour, not a long one. The important points to remember, however, in relation to that is that God has used people throughout history to record and collate his word for us as the Bible. It's God's plan. Jude's original audience wouldn't have had the Bible, as I said. They would have had the Septuagint, which is basically what we know as the Old Testament. And they also had lots of other writings about God and about Jewish history. The original audience of this letter are living in a time that some of the writings that are in the Bible were actually being recorded. Jude itself being a classic example. Remember, they're getting this letter from Jesus' earthly brother. Now, there are hundreds of other historical writings about Jesus and about God's work on earth. The Book of Enoch and the Assumption of Moses are just two examples of these. Just because a particular writing isn't scripture doesn't mean that it isn't useful. What it means is, well, basically, it's not scripture. It isn't the inspired word of God. It doesn't have the same authority or the same power of the word of God. It might be helpful, it might be really wise, or it might be the complete and total opposite. But what is clear is it isn't the word of God. Think of it like this, it might be helpful. Just like the latest book from Don Carson's or Tim Chester or Max Licardo might be amazing and insightful, it isn't scripture. We need to always remember that any other writing we come up with must always be read in the light of scripture itself. We need to remember the importance of filtering and testing as we touched on earlier. We also need to return from our detour back to the main road, back to our main point. You see, rebellion against God will end in divine justice. Moving into our second main point for this morning, rebellion leads to corrupting others. Verse 10 and 11. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things that they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken to the way of Cain... They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed by Korah's rebellion. Excuse me a moment. Jude now uses the rule of three to focus in on three well-known characters in Jewish history. He's wanting to emphasise here the point of rebellion corrupts others. These people don't seek to understand what they don't know. They slander or attack what they don't know. As we contend for the faith, as we protect it, we need to be actively seeking to understand things that we don't yet know. 
The three characters Jude chooses would have been well known to this original audience. Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, who murdered his brother Abel. Balaam, the prophet who, hired the king, who was hired by the king of Moab to put a curse on Israel. You may not know him well, but you sure have heard about the donkey who rebuked him, I'm sure. And thirdly, Korah, who led rebellion against Moses and Aaron. The way of Cain, Cain is introduced in Genesis, one of the two sons of Adam and Eve. And we see in Genesis 4, the way of Cain is the way of hypocrisy, falsehood and defiance of God. Cain offered the wrong sacrifice to God. He didn't seek to understand why his offering wasn't accepted. He became jealous and he sought revenge. You see, the way of Cain can be seen as the way of one who is the captain of their own heart, one who is proud. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The rejection hurts Cain's pride. Eventually, his arrogance leads him to murder. One who brings to God what they think he needs and not one who actually understands what God is actually asking of him. These people, these false teachers, are proud. Secondly, the prophet of, of Balaam. In Numbers 22, we see Balak, the king of Moab, who viewed Balaam as some sort of semi-magical character akin to a bit of a voodoo practitioner, someone to come and put a curse on his hated Israelites. Balaam, a prophet of God, lusted after Balak's offer of money. God stands against Balaam in judgment for his greedy heart. It's only the miraculous incident with the talking donkey that scares him enough to guard his tongue. The lesson here is how dangerous it is for a preacher or a prophet to sacrifice their independence on the altar of material prosperity, the pull of money. Sooner or later, a love of money will corrupt one's ministry. These people, these false teachers, are greedy. Thirdly, the rebellion of Korah. Korah was, like Moses and Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. He looks with an envious eye on his cousins, Moses and Aaron. Korah grabs some truth to rally the troops around and then he twists it and uses it for his own purpose. Jude uses this example to further add to his argument of the pattern of people slipping in and trying to manipulate and control. This pattern is not new. Individuals whose choices and actions lead for their own selfish gain but have the impact of corrupting others and leading others astray. Korah is another historical example of one from within who desired to lead and control others, twists the truth for his own gain. You see, these people, these false teachers, they desire control. As Peter puts it in the parallel passage in Peter 2, many will follow their depraved con conduct and they will bring the way of the truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. This brings us to our third section this morning, verse 12 and 13, images of rebellion. Verse 12, 
These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Now the NIV translates the phrase, blemishes at your love feast. The ESV translates it as hidden reefs, which contrasts well and connects well to the style of this section of Jude's warnings of imagery. Jude lists a range of images here to reinforce the points that he's made above. Hidden reefs, shepherds, clouds, dead trees, wild waves and wandering stars. These people, these false teachers, have slipped in. They can go unseen like hidden reefs, which can shipwreck you. They can masquerade as shepherds, as pastors who care for the flock, but they are actually only interested in feeding themselves. Clouds, which seem to promise waters of refreshment, but leave people thirsty and empty. They're blown this way and that because they are not solid in their knowledge and understanding, nor are they seeking to understand. These people are like trees promising good fruit. They look the goods, but they don't deliver. There's no fruit whatsoever. Their shameful ways of living is compared to the wild and surging ways of the sea. They are stars, bright and promising, but they lead, where they lead, they've wandered from the truth. And so they will experience the final judgment, the blackest darkness forever. Friends, judgment is coming for these people. Jude Connect concludes this section of his letter by quoting from the book of Enoch. In verse 14 and 16, we've already addressed where this comes from. The prophet emphasises here a common truth. When the Lord comes, he will judge all who have lived and spoken in an ungodly way. Jude applies Enoch's prophecy to the false teachers who are within the believers that he is writing to. Ungodliness is now defined as grumblers with discontent as people who live to satisfy their own desires, as those who speak arrogantly and who flatter others. As we conclude this first sermon in Jude, let us be reminded that we need to be ready and expect that people from within will try to corrupt the gospel. But let's also remember, as we've been reminded this morning, that God will judge them. Just like when we get introduced to the new good guy in the latest movie, we need to be looking for the signs, the signs of false, the signs of pride, of power and of perversion, seeking glory for themselves, not glory for God, wanting to control and twist teachings for their own, God, for their own gain. Friends, Jude is reminding us this morning that this is a pattern throughout history, that we should not be surprised, but we should expect it. What we need to do is be able to recognise it, resist it, and be ready to respond. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll unpack more 
of what we can do to respond from Jude. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for our time together here in your word. Lord, we thank you for the depth and richness of this short letter and the vast number of examples that Jude has used to hit home his point that false teachers come and slip in within. Lord, help us to not be alarmed by this, but to be alert. Help us in our daily lives to be checking and filtering things that we hear and understand against your word, with godly counsel, and above all, through the counsel and help of your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you give us your Spirit and that he helps us and guides us. We thank you that you give us your church to guide and direct and teach us to lead us. Lord, we pray for protection of your word. We pray for protection of the truth. Help us to encourage and to keep each other in check with your word as we plumb its depths to be more and more like you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.